the bolt zone this is a competitive magic the gathering podcast for the average spike co-hosted by me cody Dubose, and the reigning magic world champion nathan stoyer we're bringing you the best tips tricks and strategies to improve your game and be a better player this is episode one uh today we're going to give you sort of an intro to the podcast and talk about our experience um at the regional championship in san diego this past weekend um, but first nathan how are you doing I'm doing good, and I'm really happy that we got this podcast started. I'm super excited to talk about regionals and just get into what's been happening and standard and what you could expect from our podcast in the future. Yeah, standard's definitely an interesting place. Um, We have a lot to talk about, a lot to catch up on from the RC. Um, But first, just to give you guys a little bit of an intro to our show here. Um, So like I mentioned, this is uh, mostly geared towards competitive players, um, those who want to improve their skills, improve their results in tournaments. Um, So we're going to be focused primarily on advice um, for that sort of play. Um, That means uh, we're also focusing mostly on 60 card formats. um, And we'll also add in some analysis of new cards and and new decks, the metagame. But right now our plan is to Um, follow whatever is happening for the regional championship level tournaments so whatever format is happening for the regional championships is what we'll primarily be focusing on um, with you know sort of dives into other things that uh, as needed Um, but right now um, the upcoming regional championship season is going to be pioneer um, so we'll sort of be diving into that Uh, The one we're going to be talking about today that just happened is standard. Um, And then eventually we'll also be talking about modern whenever that makes its way in. Um, We might dip into other formats in the future, um, but for right now that isn't the focus. Um, But really what we want uh, this show to be about is you guys, the community. Um, So we want to hear your feedback. Um, So you can reach out to us on Twitter. Um, Our handle is boltthebirdmag, so B-O-L-T b-i-r-d-m-a-g on twitter um you can also reach us by email with the address in the show notes and we want to hear what you uh what you think about the podcast so what formats you want to hear more about what areas of your game you want to improve Um, we're here to put on a great show for you um, so let us know what you want to hear and along that line um leave us a review that's super helpful um it helps support the show And um, to kick things off, we're also going to be doing a giveaway on Twitter, thanks to our partners at Boogie Board. Um, We're going to be giving away a couple of free uh, Bolt the Bird themed Jot Pocket LCD tablets uh, to five lucky reviewers. Um, So if you want your chance to get your hands on a pretty sweet life tracker, um, you'll definitely want to leave a review uh, and then head over to Twitter to enter the giveaway. uh, And you can find the full details there. So that's about uh, it for what you should expect from the show. Um, You might also be wondering, um, what is Bolt the Bird? Um, You might recognize us from our main site, boltthebirdmtg.com. Over there, we regularly publish articles. Um, Unlike the podcast, we do cover a wide variety of formats and have a range of topics that we cover. So everything from casual to competitive. Um, we're focused on building a community for magic players, focused on positivity and growing your skill set at the same time, all while enjoying the game that we all love. Um, so next, we're just going to introduce ourselves as the hosts. Um, a lot of you probably already know Nathan. You probably don't know me, uh, but I'm going to turn it over to him so he can um, tell you a little bit about himself. Thank you so much, Cody. So yeah, I'm Nathan Stoyer. I'm the reigning magic world champion and 
for me, I started playing competitive magic when I was 10 years old at summer camp, and I've never really slowed down. I've always been voracious for competition and felt that I was super driven by the allure of getting to the top levels of play. And so over the years, a lot of the people that have started to become my peers were once mentors that I looked up to in the magic community. And I've seen magic pros that I've respected for the entirety of uh, my magic career turn into some of my closest friends. Um, As an example, um, for me, when I started playing, I was someone who attended every single PPTQ and tried to get in every single weekend 1K or 2K. And so over the last five to six years, that sort of went on an uphill uh, spiral. I went from regularly going to these events and finishing pretty well to at the start of COVID, right freshly after qualifying for my first and then second in real life pro tour, I um, decided that I would take my first year of COVID and I would play magic full time. And so this was kind of a scary prospect, but for me, this meant at 17, right after I got into my first year of college, I spent a lot of time living in uh, an apartment and just playing magic online in order to make a living. And as it turns out, I having something on the line, having to put my livelihood uh, in the hands of how well I could improve my skills at magic and compete was something that really pushed me to the next level. And I think without having to put my head down for a real purpose, I don't think I would have been able to achieve a lot of the results that I've seen today. And so that transformed into a full-time job now of competing and trying to be the best that I can be on the pro level, as well as uh, attending Uh, a lot of tournaments and prep, which we'll talk about a little later. But for me, magic has always been a journey. And there's this clear destination of, well, if you can make it to the top and win the world championship, then what comes next? And so that's also something I'll get into uh, at a future time. But for me, magic is just, uh, it's my life. And I feel very confident that I can share a lot of the lessons that I've learned through my career of uh, working my way up the magic ladder, so to speak. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, like you said, we're definitely going to explore a lot of that and have lots of time to, to talk about the lessons you've learned and, and can share with the community. Um, so that's really awesome. Um, so yeah, uh, everybody knows Nathan. Um, my name's Cody. Uh, I am sort of the face behind Bolt the Bird. Um, I am also a competitive player. Um, I've been playing for about three years now. I got into the game in college. I'm um, just looking for something um, competitive as a sort of outlet after uh, you know sports were done. And I found Magic, um, quickly got hooked, and started taking it more seriously. Um, you know, when when the RCQ started after COVID, um, I didn't have time much to play in the first season. Um, but in the second one, I went out and spiked my second RCQ with creativity um, and was super hooked after that. Got the competitive itch. Um, since then, top eighting a bunch of RCQs, winning a store championship, um, and then getting a chance to go play at the regional championship in San Diego. Um, so, yeah. So 
definitely not the world champ here, but uh, I am just sort of an average spike. Um, I love building decks, tuning them for the meta, finding ways to exploit um, current blind spots, which is something we're going to talk about here at the end of the episode. Um, and yeah, that's that's uh, how I sort of enjoy the game. So next, we are going to dive in to our recap of the regional championship. Um, San Diego was really awesome, a little bit smaller than Atlanta. Um, we had over 900 players participating. Um, it was a beautiful venue um, at the San Diego Convention Center, open air, sunshine, um, everything you could ask for uh, playing Magic. It was gorgeous. Yeah. It, was, it was really beautiful. I mean, being at the site was like, probably the best magic venue I've ever attended. 100%. It, and um, on top of that, I think that DreamHack did such a good job of making it feel like, okay, there was a DreamHack event you could do regardless of how you did in the tournament, but also the competitive space was really good just to focus on the magic, which was a huge upgrade over Atlanta. Definitely. I think that in Atlanta, there was a lot of focus put on this is one entire unit, this convention. And if you're part of the magic, you're in a separate section that's a little bit away from the other things going on. But it really just felt like a separate room in the corner. Right. And this felt like its own tournament space, as well as, you know, if you don't do so well, enjoy the convention for what it is. There's a lot of cool things that people who are interested in magic are probably going to love to do at the site itself. Yeah. So that was definitely awesome. I think the pairing uh, together with DreamHack is super awesome. Like you said, just having a backup to do and, you know, something to explore around it. But I definitely agree. And it seems like um, from what I've heard from people, too, um, there were a lot of improvements over Atlanta and um, not just the venue, but how everything was run and, and just overall the quality of the event. Totally. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we showed up to San Diego with two different decks. Um a little ironically, Nathan uh, ended up playing what I was going to play until about a week and a half before the event. Uh, but we both uh, found some success at the event. Um, I ended up going 10 and 4 for 61st place with Rakdos Midrange, which we'll dive into a little bit later. Uh, and Nathan, you played Esper Legends. Yeah, I did. I played Esper Legends in this tournament. I felt that all the decks were relatively close and... For me, what I was looking for in my deck was I wanted something that had very solid plans across the board. And so a lot of the emphasis that my testing team put on this tournament was how can we make sure we go into every matchup feeling like we have a very good post-board configuration? And what do I think feels uh, the most even and well-rounded against the field in the first game? And so Esper had been popular for a little while. Um, it kind of became popular in the middle of the RC season. And before that wasn't really a deck on people's right. radar. And we found that there was uh, about four to six uh, main deck flex slots that you could shift that were quite uh, helpful in forming my deck choice. In, and then there was four sideboard, card, sideboard cards we played that uh, made me feel Esper was a really good choice um, because I thought I had an edge in the mirror and I felt that we had a very good plan in the black red X matchups. Yeah, definitely important. Um, and as it turns out, um, both Esper and Rakdos mid led the way um, in terms of metagame share. Each of the decks had about 16% share each, um, and both of them posted very similar win rates. Um, Esper posted a uh, 53.7% win rate on the weekend, and uh, Rakdos mid posted 523 So both of them um, super close up top, um, leading the way not only in share, but also um, win rates. So 
Nathan, what does the metagame look like compared to sort of what your team thought it would be? Um, was it pretty close? Yeah, I mean, I think the big expectation we had was that for the for the past month, a lot of the RCs showed that Grixis was the, the most popular deck, but not necessarily the best right. deck. And so sort of counterintuitively, what you had to figure out for this tournament was actually, despite having more powerful cards uh, in terms of Corpse Appraiser and Counter Spells and maybe more flexibility with an extra color in the Grixis deck, you lost a lot of equity versus Esper and maybe even the mirror match by not having as smooth of a mana base. And so this is one of those times where the competitive decks showcase how important it is to have mana bases that are consistent and having early untapped lands was a huge difference maker because the Esper deck, for example, playing Fourthalia demands an answer early in the mm-hmm. game. And so when I look at the standard format, what I see is actually all the decks are trying to be lean and Typically, what we expect is a deck can do that, uh, but be a little bit more over the top in its approach. And so the Grixis deck was hoping to achieve this with the extra color, but the mana base hits seem to be the main factor that mean that the Grixis player wasn't performing as well. And so going to this weekend, we expected Red Black to be the premier Red Black X deck of choice in this mm-hmm. tournament. Whereas previously... Um, we expected the opposite. And so this was kind of a weak adjustment that each player had to take into account, which is how do these decks deviate? Um, When we dive into the specific things that define the differences, we see that there's four graveyard trespassers in the red black deck and four corpse appraisers in the Grixis deck. And I want to talk about this for a minute because I think it's really vital in understanding uh, why these decks function differently versus the, the premier top deck in Esper, which is, Trespasser looks pretty innocuous um, as a card. It, it looks weaker on power level versus drawing one of three, um, essentially anticipating. Sure. Whereas Trespasser affects the board great, more greatly. It affects life totals. It threatens to attack. And it also demands an extra card if your opponent wants to interact with you. And um, my teammate put this quite nicely in testing about a week and a half ago, which helped me understand when I played the games, which is, River Trespasser puts Esper players down a card versus Corpse Appraiser puts the Black Red X decks up a card. And the Esper deck typically wants to use its very last few resources to push its advantage. But when you're facing Trespasser, it's a lot harder because your resources are extremely taxed and you don't have additional ways of drawing cards that easily. For example, Rafine does not draw you raw cards. It loots those cards away. And so you actually stay neutral on resources. And... So what that effect plays out as is the black red players trespassers are a lot more threatening than graveyard uh, than corpse appraisers out of the Grixis deck, and I think being down a card and the cost of doing so is really prohibitive for the the Esper players. And so that change and also making the spell lands weaker means that is way harder to fight on the card front from Esper than it appears. Yeah, absolutely, and and that is one of the big reasons um, that I ended up moving off of Esper, just knowing, um, like you said, that that Red Black uh, was going to sort of tick up and, and potentially even overtake Grixis like we saw, um, and and that it really struggles going into that that Graveyard Trespasser without the ideal curve and, and resources to deal with it. Um, so yeah, that's super interesting. Um, but so just looking at the rest of the meta from the weekend, um, the top eight ended up consisting of, 
um, two copies of Rakdos Reanimator, which ended up going on to be a mirror match in the finals. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, two copies of Esper Legends, one Rakdos Mid, uh, one Mono White, one Green White Toxic, and one Four Color Legends combo, which we will also talk about later. Um, so pretty diverse top eight. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that the the Red Black uh, Reanimator deck, the Atraxa deck to be more specific, might have been the deck of the weekend in the right hands of players. I think that it had a surprise factor and no one had really come up with the the best version of that list. And then a week before the tournament, one of my close friends and testing partners, Sam Rolf, actually posted a version that he top aided a Mana Traders event with mm-hmm. online. And that black red deck uh, featuring a lot of copies of Etsushi in the normal Shieldred spot was sort of the defining factor that made it uh, an enticing deck for players because this is the big thing. A lot of the four drops in standard are ones that trade down two mana when you're facing go for the throat or another removal. And the main issue that these Atraxa decks face is they can get ahead on resources quite well, especially with their premier card in Atraxa and with Cruelty of Gix getting two or three chapters of value. But they struggle on converting those resources into a board advantage in games that they fall behind in. And so Atsushi kind of turns this concept on its head and says, look, I'm playing a vanilla 4-4 and I'm typically just going to make three treasures when this dies. I'm happy if you kill this because then I get to accelerate my game Mm -hmm. plan and I no longer have to play at the normal pacing of a game. I just hard cast my Atraxa or I cast a cruelty plus removal spell and I don't fall behind on board. Um, I think it's a great choice for people who spent a lot of time tuning their exact version. But ultimately, I think... It might have struggled just because the versions were still a little new and players were unfamiliar with how to play with it. And so I don't know if the win rate in the tournament is necessarily representative of how good I think the deck would be going forward, which I think it has a lot of places that it would be quite strong in in the upcoming metagame if Standard were to see a lot of high-level competitive play. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like it really hit a sweet spot over the weekend of um, people finding out that that uh, at sushi plan um, right on time and then and then um, just people not being as familiar with it too um, is that deck something that you and your team um, tested at all or were you just mo- mostly focused on esper and other things yeah i think that the attraction deck was one of our shortcomings in testing because we identified it as quite a strong deck but we didn't have the missing piece in uh in the at sushi um early enough and so by the time the last week or two rolled around of testing, we felt super comfortable with our plans in the Esper deck and decided that while there might be equity in exploring another option, the scramble for uh, putting together this Atraxa deck and having the resources to ensure that it's good is not worth playing what we think was sort of a sure thing. Yeah, that's that's a similar place to where I ended up as far as like once I realized that there was potential to explore it there was kind of just too late and and i had already uh planned everything else out for rakdos uh without the reanimator package so super interesting um notably um no grixis decks in the top eight this weekend um overall the archetype had under a 50 percent win rate um and just 9.2 percent of the metagame share uh with 86 pilots um and that is um the lowest grixis share of any of the rcs this round um so as you had mentioned it, it really fell off um in this last week here and um 
what do you think that is other than um, just people moving over to the cleaner mana base and, and more direct plane of Rakdos um, versus people kind of preying on Grixis some more? Um, any other factors that you think contribute to that drop? Well, I think that Grixis is a deck that really struggles with um, either decks that go a little bit over the top of it or decks that can go under it. It really likes to play this fair mid-range game, but here's the thing. Grixis is not that bad against anything either. Like, I have a lot of uh, time spent. I played the Grixis deck probably different from five or six cards in the worlds that I won, and so it was something that was really enticing for me in testing. Like, I know all the cards that interaction super well. I understand how to formulate a game plan with this deck right. super well. Yet, despite that, I felt that there wasn't that much mobility when you were playing against Esper, and so... I think if you take, I think the best version of Grixis that I've seen was uh, either the one that Matt Sperling slash Alan Wu played. Um, I know Matt Sperling got 12th place with the version of Grixis that looks quite nice. And my teammate, Zachary Keeney, uh, spent a lot of time making Grixis with the thesis that the Grixis deck would basically be a version of Grixis that's more similar to Black Red. It's not trying to win mirror matches. It's lower to the ground, playing lots of removal. It's playing some number of trespassers on top of Corpse Appraisers in the Grixis deck. And the blue is really just to enable uh, two copies of Make Disappear, four copies of Corpse Appraiser, and some number of Blade Quail Serpents and Counterspells in the sideboard. And I think if people were to take more of this approach the similarity to the red-black deck would become apparent and it wouldn't be so big of a deal to be on Grixis. Yet, despite that, it makes a lot of sense to me that people gravitate towards black-red. We can even look at Pioneer to see like this is a sort of strategy that players love playing. It has a similar shell of four Fable, four Graveyard Trespasser. And I think that it makes a ton of sense that uh, people are interested in playing those cards in Shieldred when they might have a lot of familiarity. Um, it also is just a more friendly deck to making mistakes. And that has to be talked about too. I think that the Black Red deck has a little less play to it than the Grixis deck. It is a little less difficult and it's um, also more friendly with Mulgans. I think the Mulgan decisions are a little easier from my testing with the two decks. And so when a deck might be better, it has easier Mulgan decisions and the play patterns are a little easier. I would expect the average competitor to one, want to play that deck more and two, have more success with it. Those are the factors that lead me to think Red Black was probably more popular. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, um, even in some of the the Grixis decks that lean more towards Red Black, um, with just sort of a splash of blue, it does still complicate not only your mana base, but uh, as you mentioned, the decision making too. And um, yeah, uh, having smooth decisions um, and easier easier time, um, especially in a, a tournament like this, makes a lot of sense. Um, so next up, um, the other big deck that people were talking about heading into the weekend, uh, Mono White. Um, so that one posted 12.5% of the meta share, 46.6% um, win rate. And um, that seems pretty low, um, but one of the biggest reasons for that is on the weekend, the deck had 68 ties, um, which is just over 7% of its matches. Um, yeah, so on the weekend, we had we had a lot of rounds going 15, 30 minutes over time. Wow. Um, a lot of draws coming out of Mono White. Um, you know, the meta is super grindy right now. Lots of decks can grind and go to time and take the game long. Um, but Mono White is just a deck that really takes that a step further. Um, what are your thoughts on this deck? 
I think that the mono white deck is not very favored against anything in post board games and has an edge on basically every standard deck in game ones is my experience playing against the deck and testing different things. But I think that the draw issue points to this larger problem of, well, my mono white deck plays a ton of sweepers and it plays cards that have a lot of activated abilities with, you know, restoration of a ganjo, bank buster, wandering emperor, uh, wedding announcement triggers, and ossification, just sort of every permanent that you mm-hmm. play has an additional line of text that grants it another 15 seconds in game sure. actions. And so for me, when I've seen the deck play online, it, it points to like, what would happen if you play like an arena mirror? Like is someone just going to time out every time playing mono white? I think realistically the issue is if one player is bad at clock management and you enter into something like a mono white mirror, there's almost no chance you're going to finish three games of a long Absolutely. set because winning the game, once you've established that the game is over, is very different. Yeah, yeah, like, two different things. Games can be over for 10 turns or 15 turns and the game can continue. And the, so the onus is on the player who's very far behind in both circumstances um, to, to concede, meaning... I think if both players agreed at the start of a match, look, when you're in an insurmountable position, you should concede right. the game. That games would finish at what the natural conclusion should be. But in tournament magic like Arceus, no one wants to give yeah, up that just edge. Not happen. And even getting a draw when you're behind is an edge you don't want to give up, right? Like in this tournament, the record that you needed to be was 12-3-1. and one. And so in typical tournaments, we say, well, if you're playing for top eight, a draw is as good of a, as a loss. That's not the case here, though. Getting a draw in this tournament is fine. If you just get that draw instead of a loss, it's maybe like getting a half of a Pro Tour invite on Yeah, YouTube. absolutely. I think there ended up being some uh, 27 or 28 um, 10-3 ones that, that placed in the top 48, and that was um, you know the difference that pushed out uh, a big chunk of the 10-4s. Um, in that draw, like you said, usually it's a loss, but in this, in this matchup, it ended up just because there were so many of them and ended up mattering quite a bit. Um, but going back to the other point you mentioned about, um, you know, if there's one player that's bad at clock management, that was one of the big reasons um, that I didn't even really consider this deck in testing. Um, I thought, you know, it looked pretty strong um, and that it could have some good matchups. But, um, you know, the risk of going to time so much and, and, not uh, sort of having control over the outcome, um, you know, whether I'm playing fast or not, if, if they aren't kind of keeping up. And and like you said, just being able to turn the corner and, and actually win the game versus just getting into a winning position. That was one of the big things that kept me from, uh, from looking at this deck. Um, but just taking a look now at the rest of the meta, um, a little bit of domain control, about 4%. Um, didn't really put up any significant results. Um, Toxic, um, just over three and a half percent, did put one into the top eight, which is super interesting. Um, and then the usual players, all under three percent. Um, the Celesnia Enchantments deck, I thought that there could be a chance that that would tick up a little bit. Um, any thoughts on that? I think it's a deck that players really want to be good. It fits a lot of people's idea of like a niche deck that, when it's good, is really good and it has markings of a broken deck for example uh, a few formats ago about a year ago we had the runes deck that was popular that played a lot of similar cards in that shell and so when we look at the similarities it's like 
okay, you get to play four cost reducers and Juke Guy Naturalist and four generous visitors, and those cards are quite powerful and make up the core of your shell. And so it makes sense why people are interested in the deck, but I think it's just not there on power level. And I think that the issue is it's very bad at playing from behind. It can only really do one thing a turn um, and and really doesn't have a churning of resources. It just runs out of resources like a normal magic deck right. too. So I don't think it can really compete with effects like Invoke Despair with cards like, um, you know, we have Rafine, which just gives you insane card selection. Um, and it doesn't really have a four of its own that's like, okay, this card defines why this strategy is good. It's just playing a lot of weaker on power level cards that try to synergize well. Yeah, no, I, I um, played a few games with it, and that's that's one of the things I noticed is that, you know, when you get your stuff down and it sticks, then you can kind of just snowball and, and go off. But uh, I thought it folded pretty heavily to disruption. You know, if, if your naturalist gets hit or, um, you know, one of your key enchantments gets countered at um, the point you really needed it, like the deck kind of folds and, and runs out of resources. So um, interesting. Right. All right. Um, any other thoughts? Yeah, one more ahead. thing I wanted to... Sorry about that, Cody. Um, one more thing I wanted to talk about was uh, one last note I had on the mono white midrange deck is this concept of deck choice exploitability. And what I mean by that is a lot of decks end up having a weakness if you understand their overall game plan that you can't really avoid even with conscious deck building decisions. And so for mono white, when I looked at it as a choice for the tournament, I saw that the, ex- the exploit is the deck can't close the game very fast, similar to what we talked about earlier. And what that means is if a strategy can achieve achieve a way of uh, beating a long game versus mono-white, because you're always going to have a lot of time, the mono-white deck really has a low win percentage. When we talked about when we talk about a lot of matchups, we say, oh, it's like this is a bad matchup. It's 60-40, mm-hmm. it's 55-45 over a medium sample size, you're going to lose a lot of matches. But when we talk about a deck like Mono White, which really can't close out games, and I tell you I'm going to play Mono White and you're going to play Red Black Atraxa, you're going to get Atraxa to play basically every game, even if you go down to five cards. And that means that the Mono White deck could easily have a 15 to 20% win rate in a matchup. Um, and so I think introducing that concept of like, how do decks end up having really egregiously low win rates and what are the markings of it is something to do, something to think about and, and to be aware of. And that feels like a very prime example of this that you don't see all the time. Yeah, um, that's super interesting. Yeah. Just sort of the inevitability of they're not closing the game, so you're going to get to do your thing one way or another. Um, that's super interesting. And I know that the Atraxa matchup um, was, was very bad for Mono White. So um, that's an interesting right. point. Really, really yeah. <laughs> atrocious. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> and the other note I had was just a concept of aggro decks are things that people are always going to gravitate towards. This is a format that really doesn't have openings for aggro decks because every deck is equipped with, uh, if you're a black tech, four cutdowns in the 75 and four go for the throats, as well as shieldreds. And so even if your deck plays no other cards besides these and some generic three mana three threes or, uh, you know, a, a five mana payoff that draws two and kills a creature, like it's going to be very hard for aggro decks to succeed. Right. And yeah. so this is a good example of why people when choosing their decks 
are going to make decisions that reward you just playing the stock best deck. I think that the aggro win rates are extremely unsurprising to me. The toxic win rate is boosted by a very good player in Max McVitie making top four with the deck. And I think that in general, it's not going to see a lot of success versus black-based mid-range right. decks. And otherwise, it's no surprise to me that Mono Red posted like a 44% win rate. And um, yeah, I I think that that's a big factor when making a, a deck choice. Like, do we have any edge? I, I don't know what, what the edge looks like. If you can't identify your edge when you register for the tournament, if your edge is just, well, I think that people are going to register decks that are not that good into my deck, that sort of feels like an unacceptable reason to me. And I think that's a lot of how people justify aggro. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm with you on that. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough time to be an aggro player right now. <laughs> um, before we go yes. on to the next section, um, anything, like, what do you think it's going to take to change that? Um, this is something that you and I had talked about a few months ago um, when we did an article for Bolt the Bird. Um, and you had mentioned just like a better one drop, uh, better two drops, better, um, ways to kind of deal with the just amount of removal right now and, and dealing with mid range. Um, have your thoughts changed at all on that? Or, or what do you see right now as um, the kind of key to bringing aggro back into a competitive place? Yeah. I mean, I do know that monastery Swiss beer was reprinted since the last time we talked and the effects of that were not massive in big part, because I think, life-based aggro is not going to be able to be super successful into a shielded metagame. I actually think the sweet spot would be some card that reward, rewards like an alternate aggro strategy, such as um, the toxic deck getting a boost in some way, shape, or form. I'm not exactly sure what card fits that description, but for me, the best things that I can think of are I mean, for example, they printed a card, like a one-mana card that's very good against Invoke. Um, it's like you gain hexproof. Um, for one mana in this uh, in uh, March of the Machines, and I think that that's a big example of like the type of effect that comes back to fight against the black based decks very right. well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so let's get into our next section, um, kind of diving into the decks that we registered for the weekend. Um, but first, this segment is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Uh, Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about running and ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the jot pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more at myboogieboard.com games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games never start a match without your boogie board uh so nathan we can uh start with your deck if you want to you had mentioned before you had four kind of flex spots and uh, four key sideboard cards that uh really made the deck stand out for you um what were those yeah so the big question when i was building my esper deck uh, with my set of teammates was how can I make sure that this Esper deck has the ideal number of two drops? Um, what are the best flex slot two drops? And what are the best, best flex slot three drops? As well as how do I have a bigger plan that counteracts um, decks like Mono White and Attraxa that are trying to go uh, a level up? And 
I, I got to say a big shout out to Oliver Tomiko and my team Hooded Brawlers that worked together for this event. Uh, it was a group of about uh, 15 of us. And, um, you know, a, a big part of that was my buddy Abe Corrigan, who put a lot of work into this tournament. Abe actually flew out to this tournament to play in the last chance qualifiers from New York to San Diego. He 5 0 a last chance qualifier, and then he crushed the Swiss, and he made top eight of the tournament, actually. That's the dream um, right there. With the escrow work done. Yeah, so he really showed up and did a really good job with the escrow list. And the big uh, cards that we added were, we decided we wanted Harbins in the main deck in the two-drop flex slot, um, and we played one Razor Lash Transmogrant as well. Not huge innovations, but the reason why we liked Harbin so much is because we found that the best three-drop was Gix. Instead of having a ton of Adelines, we had a 2-1 split of two Gixes and one Adelines. And so the general idea is in the Esper Mirrors or versus Black Red, um, having two drops your opponent has to kill with Cutdown as premium to clear the way for sure. Rathene. And we thought that Harbin was one of the most threatening ones on top of the normal four Denix and four Thalias that you're almost required to play mm-hmm. in Esper. Um, we wanted to make sure people had to kill our creature on turn two or three. And then we have the two Gixes, which uh, when you're grinding in the Esper Mirror or when you're trying to get ahead versus Red Black, uh, the Gixes are, are really, really nice with the Harbins in combination. Just curving Harbin into Gix means your opponent almost has to kill Absolutely. one of them. And if they let you get a hit on turn three, that could be the game right there. Whereas a lot of people had a ton of Adelines. And the reason I didn't like this as much was... I think Adeline dying to cut down happened too often for my liking. Sometimes your opponent would kill your two drop and then they'd cut down your Adeline and would be like, wow, my three drop just traded for a cut down. That feels like a tempo swing that I can't Absolutely. recover that from very well. Um, so that was the deciding factor on the main deck. And the last thing was we played two Urtais in our main deck. A lot of lists had between zero and one. And we felt that Urtai was... Uh, a much better game one card than post board card. We actually end up cutting our ties in most of our post board configurations across the board, but we wanted to have edges in games where we didn't get to have counter spells. And so while we played four counter spells in the sideboard, we had two Urtais in the main deck to have a better plan against sweepers from Mono White and a better plan against uh, Gix's Command Slash Invoke Despair from the Red Black Axe decks, and then a little bit better of a time versus Atraxa who wanted to resolve their cruelty of Gix's. Um, so those are kind of the main deck decisions. I think Urtai is okay, but the fact that when you pass, it's almost a face-up card with no other flash threats is a pretty big deal that makes it less appealing. And also it giving you additional answers to Shieldred is nice because one way Esper loses is just your opponent plays a Shieldred and your pants are down and you don't have to go for right, it right. over. And so nothing you can do. You just you know lose two on your turn. They gain two to four to six. And you lose the game pretty quickly. It's like a one or two turn window where you need yep. an answer. Um, as for the sideboard decisions, just to note, I think a good piece of tech that we had was we played Liliana of the Veil in our sideboard as a two of. Um, and we also played two Gix's commands. Let me dive into the theory on Liliana really quickly. We thought that the Graveyard Trespasser issue that I talked about earlier was very real, and we wanted to have something that meant if our opponent killed our two-drop into playing Graveyard Trespasser, we had it punished that left us ahead on board rather than Definitely. behind. That's a big swing. And, and so the Lilianas being able to go minus and then plus once into minus again is the, is the 
normal play pattern that you want to reward. Um, it does have a lot of awkward spots, but we know historically Liliana is a very strong card, and people haven't been playing it as much because it hasn't lined up as well into the format, but we felt that it was good into that situation versus Trespasser. I am a big fan of it um, in the Esper Mare as well because post-board you have a ton of removal in each player's decks, and then uh, being able to get two to three cards out of your Liliana is a huge tempo swing. Um, and lastly, uh, the the other note was on uh, the numbers of Liliana. I actually wanted to play three, so did a lot of my teammates, but this is where open deck list comes into play in a really mm-hmm. big way. We actually decided that one of the cards that we thought was best against our Esper deck that maybe people didn't pick up on and were sideboarding out was Razor Lash Transmogrant. Because in a lot of our post-board games, we would board counter spells, Liliana's and Gix's commands. And if our opponent had Razor Lashes into our basically all non-basic mana base, we were in a lot of trouble. It was a very hard card to counteract and we would be losing a long game. And so in an open deckless format, it would be pretty intuitive for an opponent to see, okay, they have three Liliana that they're probably going to board in. We want to keep some number of Razor Lash Transmogrants. In order to be less exploitable into this, we decided to play two Lilianas so that our opponent couldn't freely board this card in and that they might just keep it in their sideboard. I think if the common knowledge was that Razor Lash is quite good against this stock default version of Esper, then we wouldn't even play Liliana. So that kind of speaks to how close sure. this decision can be based on how people are normally sideboarding. That's a an interesting point. Um, going into the tournament, I, I had heard a lot of chatter um, where people were saying like, oh, you should take Transmogrant out in the Esper matchup just because it can't block. Um, right. How did that sort of play out for you throughout the tournament? Were people leaving it in? Did you get a chance to, to sort of see that play out? or? So... I knew from internal testing that it was quite good in the matchup, but no one really understood uh, playing versus my Esper list that we were going to be boarding into more of a full control rule, cutting a lot of the three drops that weren't Rafines and Denix um, uh, out of the early plays. If people were to uh, board in Transmogrants like happened in the tournament, it shifted how my game plan could operate. And it meant that I had to be a little more aggressive, which is not what I like to take on as a rule versus decks like Red Black. Um, most people did board out the Transmogrants, and the theory on it played out quite well. But if people were being cognizant of how we were sideboarding, I think they might try to exploit that. And um, the last card to talk about is Gix's Command, which I know is kind of a card that people don't have a super wide range of knowledge on. My theory on Gix's Command is it's one of the best possible cards against Esper, and it's one of the best cards from the Esper side against the Esper mirror. Yeah. And so our strategy was boarding in Gix's commands in the mirror match as a trump card, so you can trade off resources and casting Gix's command that almost single-handedly can win the game from a lot of board states. And then on the other end, whenever my opponent had Gix's commands, I felt that it was very hard to win the game. I almost think of it as like an Esper mm-hmm. hate card. And I think that people didn't fully realize, even by the tournament, how strong the effect was against most versions of Esper. In my opinion, if Esper were to be the most popular deck going forward and Blackguard was the second most popular, versions of Blackguard should probably just play three Gixxas commands in the 75 as their plan post-board to go over the top of them. Yeah, it's, it's super good in the matchup. And it's interesting that more people didn't, 
sort of catch on to it. I mean, I think the first time we saw this at the RC level was all the way back at the European RC, you know, almost a month before last weekend. Um, it's definitely something that I had my eye on and something that I thought would catch on more than it did. Um, but yeah, it's super good tech. Um, playing it um, in Esper, what were your thoughts on the weekend? How did it play out for you? Um, I know you played the Mir quite a bunch. Yeah, I mean, the Gixus Command was quite good. The one mirror match that I lost was versus a player who also played two Gixus Commands in her sideboard. And so I didn't feel as bad losing to that. I was like, okay, they also identified this to be a really strong card in the mirror match, and they played it, and my plan worked out really well on the other mirrors I played. Um, big shout-out to Austin Bursevich, who was one of my opponents, another really strong player. We played a mirror match on coverage, and... Um, you know, he, he got really crushed in, in that round. And I think that a big part of the success we found in the mirror match was, well, we're going to lean into being really, really um, aggressive game one. And then in the post-board games, we have this control plan as well. That's a little better with Gix's commands and uh, Liliana's. And so it, it is pretty cool playing uh, a close to 75 card mirror match against your teammates. Yeah, definitely. That's always fun. Um any other thoughts on your deck or sort of your tournament path on the weekend? Anything that jumped out at you? No. Um, yeah, I I mean, I could talk a little bit about the end of the tournament, how that goes, but I'd love to hear some from your end, Cody, about how the tournament went for you, what you learned, and the successes that you think Yeah, you for sure. So I think one of the biggest things for me um, was, and, and ultimately sort of what ended up deciding uh, my placement on the weekend, um, was my games against the mirror. Um, I played the mirror six times, uh, started the tournament um, with three, three mirrors in a row, ended up going three and three in the mirror overall. Um, Then the only other match I lost on the weekend was against Grixis. Um, And I think being able to play the mirror competitively against other high level players is not something um, that I got a lot of practice with before the event um our local scene is not not hyper competitive um there's not a ton of standard events happening around here so most of the prep that i was able to do um was you know on arena and playing with a couple of friends um and mostly i um was focusing on the esper matchups and the mono white matchup as well as grixis um so I, de- I think that I definitely could have prepped more for the mirror and that, that did hurt in the long run. Um, but there were a few um, kind of adjustments that I um, brought with me to counter some of these red-black X decks. Um, and one of them being Obnixilis. Um, that card was super big for me all weekend. Um, it was a late edition, so I brought it as a two of. Um, my original thinking was that it was pretty good against mono white just as another threat that they, you know, aren't really going to be pressuring. If I can get two of them down and start ticking down their life total, that's really good. Um, but then, you know, as I was testing, I realized that it was actually really strong, um, especially in the mirror, but also in the Grixis, um, with the removal that I was able to play, um, and then being able to, um, just sort of bring that in later in the game and kind of close things out that there were. Uh, at least two games that, the, the, like, it single-handedly won. Um, you know, we had traded resources back and forth. Um, both were, you know, down to one or two cards in hand and, and just, you know, casualty to Obnixilis and then just was ticking it up and, and won the game that way. Um, so that was that was an yeah. interesting card um, 
did you guys talk about that at all? It's not super relevant in, in the Esper matchup, but is that something that your team talked about at all? We didn't focus on Omnic Solus a lot. I mean, I know that the Anvil deck had a few players succeed with it that focused on four Omnic mm-hmm. but that was a card that I think was largely unexplored from our testing, and I don't think we really focused a ton of efforts on yeah, it. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that there were several... Um, Several of the mirrors I played um, that my opponent brought in, you know, two of them. There was um, one of them that actually they started with a, a more Planeswalker heavy build and had Lilies and Obnixilis in the main board, which I thought was interesting. Um, but yeah, yes, I think that's the aggro version of the deck that, like, I know Corey Baumeister was um, putting up on Twitter as something he had worked on a decent amount, and I thought that deck was quite cool. I actually really liked the black-red aggro version of it, too. It seems quite... Yeah, I did, too, and actually um, pulling something from that um, after testing a little bit, one of the cards that I noticed out of that deck was really strong, um, in my opinion, was the um, Bloodthirsty Adversary. Um, And I think it sort of played like a twofold role for me on the weekend, um, which is one into the more controlling decks or um, decks with a lot of interaction, um, being able to, you know, cast a duress early on in the game and then play some other things out and come back um, and duress them again on turn five with a hasty threat to kind of take their last piece of interaction, take their invoke, whatever the case may be. Um, That line um, was pretty strong for me on the weekend. Uh, but then also in some of the other just mid-range matchups, being able to um, kind of count that as two extra pieces of removal um, and, you know, get that go for the throat back after they've cast a Shouldred and, and you know, bring this in, recast the go for the throat and swing for three. Um, I thought that was pretty strong as well. So I didn't love the all-in aggro approach um with the red blacklist, kind of what we talked about earlier, I just felt there were a lot of matchups where it wasn't favored and there was nothing you could really do to fix it. Um, but the, but the bloodthirsty adversary, I like that tech. So that's something I decided to play. Um, and then the rest of my list, um, was a little bit uh, different than some of the other Rakdos lists. I played two copies of duress in the main board. Um, I wanted to go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, oh, wow, that's interesting to see. I know a lot of decks were not playing that many duresses in general. Yeah, so so I ended up with a 2-2 split in the main and the side. Um, and my reasoning for it was um, basically every deck right now has um, a good target for duress to open the game with. Um, and then the, the, it also has um, some late game importance, too, in several matchups. Um, but, you know, even... Uh, a deck like Esper, I, one of the biggest challenges uh, for me to beat Esper is the wedding announcement. So I was like, even there in game one, it's not the end of the world um, if I can go grab their wedding announcement um, or the go for the throat and then I can stick a shoulder, you know. Um, but it actually played out pretty well. I think I would um, I would have probably kept it the same. Um, I liked having access to it game one. Um, and I think it, it took a lot of people off guard. Um, even with the open deck list, there were several times where I just like opened game one and cast duress and, and their face kind of fell, um, when I took their fable and that's kind of what they were counting on to bridge them throughout the game. Um, but what were you, what are your thoughts on that, on the, the main deck duress right now? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a ton of thoughts on duress specifically. I think that it's probably exactly fine. Like, 
it is nice to have it in the Fable mirrors early on. And I think a lot of the matchup revolves around resolving early Fable. I also think that the big issue with Duress is you can get stranded with it in hand after you trade resources and it can be a dead card. And that's alleviated in a small part by having Fables and Blood Tokens from Blood Tithe Harvester. Um, The main issue being that like you really want to save those effects for excess lands more so than excess spells. But it's also a card you're going to bring in quite often. It's not dead in any matchup, and at its worst versus like Esper Legends, if you have Duress in a hand with Shieldred, you can still put together a game plan of trying to take their go from the throats. And so it makes sense to me to play small numbers of Duress, like one to two copies. Um, yeah. Yeah, so then the last card that was kind of uh, an oddball out of my list that I wanted to talk about um, was Dreams of Steel and Oil. Um, and for anyone that doesn't know that one, because I got asked all weekend what that card is, um, it's a one black sorcery. Um, target opponent reveals their hand. You choose an artifact or creature card from it. Then you choose an artifact or creature card from their graveyard and exile the chosen cards. Um, so I played one of that in the main and one in the side. Um, my thinking was the Esper matchup. I expected Esper to be um, a big portion of the metagame. I ended up only playing it once on the weekend, so the card didn't perform as well as I would have hoped. Um, but I thought it was really great against Esper, um, being able to go get a card out of their hand um, and then exile if they have a Denik in the yard. Um, I thought that was pretty strong. And then also with um, a lot of copies of uh, stuff in the graveyard that can come back, just having um, that extra piece of removal on top of the um, graveyard trespassers I thought was interesting. Um, did you run in anyone else playing this? No, I, I didn't see anyone else playing that specific card, but versus Esper, um, does it take Planeswalkers? I know it hits it creatures. Does it does not. Hit Just creatures and artifacts. So um, there was some times where I was able to, to like hit a bank buster off of it, which was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, just creatures and artifacts. Got it. Yeah, it's not a card that I saw a lot of representation of, but I also am not quite confident that it's something that I would want in a blackguard list going forward. Um, I understand the idea and theory on it. I just think that typically it contrasts with Duress, and I'd rather play Duress over the creature answers because you get to play uh, just solid removal spells in the rest of yeah and that's kind of that's the conclusion i came to as well um after the weekend but but yeah that was my list i was i was uh happy with the result obviously i was kind of gunning for the top 48 pt invite um that did not happen um 10-4 i thought um you know going into the last round that 10-4 might get us there uh but i had pretty bad breakers so i got bumped down which is all good we'll get there next time Uh, but it was super fun all weekend and um definitely a great tournament um I felt like the environment was good. The competition was good. Um, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. The tournament itself was awesome. I wanted to spend a minute sort of talking about the end of my tournament. Um, I'll recap the results really quickly. Um, And yeah, I mean, the the tournament was great itself. I flew out just to compete and compete. travel and be with a lot of friends because for me the stakes were a little different i'm already qualified for the the next pro tour and the world championships and so the invites on the line aren't as pertinent or relevant for me 
<laughs> All right. Um, so we are getting long here on time, uh, but there's one other thing I want to call out from the regional championship, and it's something that's been getting a lot of buzz online this week. Um, but it is this spicy four color combo legend deck that made the top eight. Um, so <clears throat> this was um, created by a bunch of members of the Sanctum of All testing team. Um, and it sort of revolves around the card Blade of Shared Souls. Um, and it gives you sort of a Skull Clamp-esque combo uh, between that card and Legendary Creatures with Death Triggers, also utilizing Ratadrabic of Urborg. Um, so it allows you to make copies, um, sack your creatures, get those Death Triggers. You can go infinite um, when you have an Atsushi in play because it costs, costs two mana to equip uh, the Blade. You get three treasures when the Atsushi dies. Um so what are your thoughts on this deck? Is it good? It placed in the top eight. Uh, from an outside perspective, though, it feels sort of like the shell itself is maybe what was doing the carrying. Um, we see, you know, it's got mostly the Grixis shell, Fable, Blood Tithe Harvester, Corpse Brazer, Cut Downs, Go for the Throats. Um, and then they have um, these combo pieces sort of sprinkled in along with some uh, other cards at the top end. Um, what are your thoughts on this? The deck looks quite good to me. I mean, I do see that a lot of it is this Grixis shell, but the other additional upside it has is it has a really solid plan against uh, Grixis opponents. And I think Ao and Atsushi are really scary for Esper as well. These dragons are at a really good spot in the metagame. And so in addition to the Blade of Shared Souls being kind of hard for me to evaluate in terms of how good is this combo really, I think that the fact that it gets to play these powerful dragons in a shell that has the chance to abuse them is probably quite good. And it's an interesting idea that he slotted it into the normal Grixis shell where you do, you do just have a ton of good cards. Um, one thing to note about CFT Sock's deck building, the guy who did really well, he placed in top eight with this deck, um, is he tends to have some crazy numbers on things. And so, for example, I see that there's three Blood Tithe Harvesters in this deck, and my first thought is like, well, why are we not playing four of that card? Like, if it's good in this strategy, it should be good enough to warrant playing four. That's like the immediate thing I'd be like, I would just change up this number, but I'm sure he has a reason for it. Do we really sure. need the concealing curtains with, I think the idea behind it was we can mill out the opponent if you combo with that card mm -hmm. and make them draw a ton of cards. But to me, that doesn't seem necessary because once you get super far ahead, even versus a deck like... Um, I guess Mono White, he wants to play around Farewell. I don't know how necessary it is. Um, I I have no clue what other reasons he could have, but the list itself seems really cool to me, and it's something to keep in mind going into the next format, which is like there actually is a mid-range combo deck that you can play, and if this deck is iterated on enough, maybe it can be a Tier 1 competitor. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be super interesting to see uh, where this goes. Like I said, I know there's been a lot of buzz online about it this week, people playing it, people iterating on it. Um, so we'll definitely have to keep an eye on it and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I think that um, it's going to finish us out for the week. Nathan, any last thoughts on RC San Diego, uh, the competitive tournament that we were at, uh, standard, anything like that? No, not really, Cody. I think that this was a really good episode just to kind of highlight our thought processes and what tournament reports can look like. Um, I really enjoyed doing this, and I'm looking forward to our next uh, few episodes. And just to recap, we're going to be having an episode bi-weekly, so 
Um, that should be in, in the near future. Um, you'll see our episodes pop up twice a month. Um, and please, please, please feel free to share our podcast anywhere. Um, yeah, Cody, if, if you want, um, yeah, take us out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Bold Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. Like I said earlier, we want to uh, make this show for you. We want to take your thoughts into account. So please let us know what you want to hear. Um, and if you want to help support the show, consider subscribing to our Patreon. Um, you can find that link in the show notes. Uh, and thanks again to Boogie Board for their sponsorship of this episode. And we will be back in a few weeks to talk to you guys about whatever goes on. Mm-hmm.